You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, one of my um, favorite things about getting into podcasting is it's even made it more fun to listen to other people's podcasts. And uh, our friend Chris Hitchcock, one of our SS Chat co-leaders, um, recently did kind of a first podcast called Talking Social Studies. And it was a really good podcast. I loved listening to it. And they had some good discussion about some of their favorite resources for investigating right. primary sources. Yeah, no, and, it was a fun discussion. Yeah, and so it got me thinking that, um, you know, that that's something that's really important to educators. And one of the, the groups that's doing the best of it out there they mentioned was uh, SHEG. I like to say SHEG, but the Stanford History Education Group. Have you used their resources? Of course I have. I think that every social studies teacher has used it, or if not, they really should. Yeah, I've, I've found all the resources um, hit on a lot of the points that we want in social studies, you know, critical thinking, the ability to corroborate sources, um, right. all, all kinds of just important skills. But I don't know why I'm talking about it, because we have someone here much more qualified than me to talk really? about it. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, uh, far more qualified. And we, we're going to bring in uh, our guest today, who's Joel Breakstone. He is the director of the Stanford History Education Group. Welcome, Joel. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate you having me on. We appreciate you coming out. Do you want to start off by just telling us a little bit about your background in education? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I was a history major in, in college, uh, and I knew that I was interested in being a teacher. Um, and I ended up teaching uh, high school history in Thetford, Vermont, which is about halfway up the state, right on the border of New Hampshire. Uh, and uh, fresh out of college, I was taking over teaching all of the U.S. history classes for a small school, about 350 kids for 7 through 12. And I was going to be responsible for teaching all of the sections of U.S. history uh, and it was going to be unleveled. And the gentleman who had been there before me had been there for a long time. And the uh, the big thing that he left me, aside from a filing cabinet full of mimeographed worksheets, was a classroom set, of the American Pageant, uh, which is a great, uh, great textbook. Uh, but it's also a pretty challenging textbook. And it's also one that was not necessarily going to be accessible to all of my students. And I also knew that I didn't want my students to be limited only to the single narrative of the textbook. And I wanted to make sure that they understood that history was a series of competing accounts and that as historians, we want to wrestle with those differing perspectives on the past and try to reconcile them and, and try to create um, some, some more cohesive account of, of what took place. Um, and so I wanted my students to read historical documents. Um, but uh, when you give a group of 14 and 15 year olds uh, documents that are 3000 words long and eight point font times <laughs> New Roman at 737 in the morning, uh, it doesn't go very well. It uh, can be kind of disastrous as a matter of fact. Um, and it's that 
uncomfortable feeling when you have that I had too often as a new teacher when uh, something is uh, the lesson is not going very well and you know you have to do it four more times the rest of the day and trying to figure out how you can salvage it as the day uh, goes on so the kids aren't ready to run you out of town on a rail and I figured out some things over the course of the time I was in Thetford about how uh, how I could get my students to engage with historical documents. I could give them some excerpts rather than entire documents. And looking at multiple documents rather than a single source was uh, was a bet- much better approach. Um, and that set of questions ultimately led me to go to graduate school at Stanford and uh, to work with the Stanford History Education Group and um, to work with a group of people who were interested in those same sets of questions around how do we uh, provide materials for students to engage in historical inquiry and to provide materials for teachers to help students engage in historical inquiry. So one thing teachers don't have is time to make those materials. I think that's a, you know, you're, you dealt with the same thing a lot of history teachers deal with, right? I I think most teachers want to use primary sources more, but I know for me, the challenge was just like, okay, in my limited time, where do I get them? You know, how do I gather up sources without, you know, spending hours going through archives myself and determining the appropriate sources? And so I always found, um, you know, using uh, document-based questions, uh, oftentimes the uh, AP curriculum in a lot of courses requires them. I just started taking those and using them in my class, sometimes using the essays and the questions they had, other times just pulling out documents from those. So it definitely is a challenge in, in how to use those kinds of things. What about you, Michael? What was your experience with primary documents? Yeah, I think I also started using like the primary, the um, DBQs and then altering them because they sometimes I felt like they were kind of very one dimensional or they didn't do exactly what I wanted to. And so altering those is kind of what I ended or started doing. But yeah, I think it's also kind of funny that you talk about how the first time it doesn't go so well. And then you have four other times to improve. Sometimes I'm so thankful for a rotating schedule because I often feel that my first period class does not get the best. So. <laughs> right. I was the same way. I had a uh, first period and then second period plan and then like four more AP government sections after my last few years. And you just level up that second, third time. And then by the fourth, you're like, oh, yeah. Although my peak was always the third time. Yeah. By by sixth hour, people don't understand this, but once you've done a lesson like four or five times, I started to realize like consciously that by sixth hour, like – I just would engage more discussion with the class because I think I was getting a little bored with the lesson right. the fifth time. So it's these little nuances to teaching that you kind of have to do it till you realize. So, Joel, can you tell us? So, so what do you, what's the Stanford History Education Group about? What's the purpose of the materials? How can people use them? Yeah, so we have a, a couple of, of main goals. One is to provide free online curriculum materials for teachers. Um, and it's also to do research about how those materials work and to, to work on ways to, to improve uh, history education uh, writ large. And so we have, um, for more than a decade now, been involved in creating free online curriculum materials um, before I was there. So uh, a variety of people. Um, the, the Stanford History Education Group was originally founded by Sam Weinberg, who's a professor at the Graduate School of Education at Stanford. And much of the work is based off of uh, research that he originally did around what is the way that historians read documents and that there are a very specific set of ways that historians read texts, that they want to know where the document came from. They source the document. Who wrote it? When? Why? For what purpose? And they corroborate. They look uh, for multiple sources and they look for points of similarity and difference across those documents. And they think about the documents 
in the context in which they were created, and they think about how that context influences the content. Uh, those can be pretty hard for students to wrap their heads around. And so what we've tried to do is to create materials that can make those disciplinary skills of historical thinking accessible to students. And so beginning with Historical Thinking Matters, uh, which is the original website that was uh, created in, in collaboration with George Mason University. Um, Shake's been involved in, in making a variety of, of free online resources. So Historical Thinking Matters was followed by the Reading Like a Historian curriculum. Uh, and then the Beyond the Bubble website, which has short uh, document-based assessments that tap those same sets of historical thinking skills. And part, part of Sam's argument was that um, historical thinking is a very unnatural act, right? I think that's... Is, that's the name in, of the book? Yeah, I think that's like in the title. That is the name of the book, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thinking and other unnatural acts, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and so what... How do you? T- I guess the the challenge is in teaching students how to think in those terms that that can be kind of unnatural. Um, that goes beyond the reactions you often get to what happens in the public or understanding history on your Facebook feed. Oftentimes, um, at least for me. Yep. Yeah. So I mean, I think part of what we've we've tried to do is to provide opportunities for students to have structured ways in which to engage with historical materials. So rather than being given that 3,000 word document, like I did with my students early in my teaching career, of giving students a curated set of documents. So if we're trying to learn about the Battle of Lexington, here is an image that was made uh, from the time period in engraving. Here's an image that was made more than 100 years later um, by somebody who was paid by the Lexington Historical Society to uh, commemorate the Battle of Lexington. Here is a diary uh, entry from a British officer, and here is a uh, piece of sworn testimony from Minutemen who were, uh, or from uh, colonists who were on the green. And we provide students opportunities to engage with those texts and to uh, practice those skills of historical thinking of, of considering what, is the, what are the relative strengths and weaknesses of these sources to try to reconcile the competing uh, versions of events that those different sources put forth. Why might Lieutenant John Barker have said that uh, his men fired without orders? Uh, why would the image that Sandum created uh, more than 100 years later depict the colonists in heroic terms. Um, so really trying to prov- give students easy entry points for engaging in what can be normally fairly complex ways of thinking about the past. It's funny because that's the one that I think I'm doing next. Uh, that oh, nice. one, is that one of your, your favorite ones? That is one of my favorite ones. I think it's. I think it does a really nice job of of getting students to to see the 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 varying perspectives on a single event and, and really deploy all of those skills. I like that you um, that Sheg that Sheg names skills and then has students then go do it. So this way they know exactly the type of skill that they are building. I think that's a, a really spectacular move rather than just saying, explain this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, it was something that I was certainly missing when I was teaching of that um, having vocabulary to, to help students think about how do we how do we think carefully about historical texts. It's one thing to give them a document and say, read it carefully or closely right. or, or think critically. It's very different to say, you know, what's the first thing we do when we look at, at a, a historical document? We're going to look at the source information. We're going to ask who wrote it, when why and for what purpose. Um, and so, yeah, when, when we can give names to these particular moves, it allows students to have, have a better way in which to uh, engage with the, the text in a meaningful fashion. 
I know when I was first teaching, I was taught SOAPs. I don't know if you guys are both familiar with SOAPs. There's a bunch of different acronyms out there, and SOAPs essentially, you know, means subject, occasion. Um, let's see if I can remember them all. Uh, audience, um, purpose of of the you know whoever created the document, whether it's the painting or a picture or um, a letter or whatever it is. Uh, and then, gosh, I forget the last one. But the point is, is that it asks you to contextualize all that information across. What what terminology does Sheg use to kind of explain and help students think about those things? Yeah, so we, we've we've laid out the those skills that that Sam originally identified that historians engage with the, uh, around sourcing, contextualization, corroboration, and then adding a fourth of of close reading of what is the words the author uses to. Uh, to create a particular emotions or reactions in the readers or what has the author chosen to leave out um, and, and why might they have chosen to leave it out. And so those are the, the four main historical thinking skills that we've identified in our curriculum and we uh, call them out throughout so that there are guiding questions that go along with our lesson plans and they will say this is a sourcing question, this is a corroboration question and uh, in the introductory material section of our website we have classroom posters that are high resolution so you can print them out and you could have them on your wall as you know, in your classroom saying you know sourcing, ask these questions, contextualization includes these questions and there's a chart that has all of the questions and uh, even sentence starters for students so that they're a variety of scaffolds to help students um, begin to to build these these ways of, of thinking, so that they're automatic, not not simply uh, a a prompt. Um, until we all get the posters on our wall, which I'm going to, I'm going to order them, put them all around my office, uh, so everyone who walks in, could you could you explain those those skills, those terms you just used? Because I think some of those are really critical um, to you know the types of thinking we that we want uh, students in social studies classrooms to do. Yeah. So, you know, the, what Sam found was that, that the first thing that all of the historians did, so his, his original study was to ask a group of historians and a group of high school students to read a set of documents about the American Revolution and to think out loud as they did. Um, and what he saw was that all the historians immediately looked to the source, that they sourced it. They wanted to know who wrote this document, when did they write it, uh, and what was the purpose in writing the document. And by doing that, you can orient yourself to uh, the purpose of the document and the perspective of the author. Uh, and then to think about the context in which it was created. So contextualization asks students to think about the historical circumstances. And there is both big C context of the, the broader sociopolitical uh, movement of the time uh, and to think about how that might influence the content of the document. And then there's also small C context of the immediate personal uh, context of the author of the document. So if you're thinking about um, that, that Lexington lesson that I mentioned, there is the small C context of Lieutenant John Barker having a really bad day at the office when things go uh, pretty disastrously <laughs> wrong over the course of the march uh, out to Lexington and Concord. And then there's the big C context of um, the broader conflict between the American colonies and the British government, and moreover, uh, the, the ongoing uh, armed conflict in some cases between the colonists of the context of the Boston Massacre a few years earlier, and the fact that uh, British soldiers are put on trial for shooting at colonists, and so uh, how that might have influenced what Barker might say uh, as well in his diary entry are, are the pieces of context that we want students to think about, and then corroborations that we don't want that we want students not to accept a single piece of evidence uh, as as uh, as 
evidence of the past. We want students to be looking for multiple sources of information and to look for similarities and differences across those documents. And that as students do that, they can begin to uh, build a better sense of what actually happened in the past or to their, the, best, uh, the best estimation of what took place as they, they consider um, where there is agreement, where is disagreement, and what are the pieces of evidence that are missing from, um, from the accounts that are available. Something that I've noticed that there's the augmented, not the augmented, the um, altered language that you, that's with the lesson, and then you have the original documents. Every so often I talk with teachers about this and we're like, well, we shouldn't use the, the altered. We should only use the, um, the original. What are your thoughts on that? Yep. So it's it certainly, uh, it's a distinguishing characteristic, I think, of, of our materials is that we have modified text. That's the um, I was looking and- for. And so they are modified in a variety of ways. Uh, the biggest one is that they are excerpted. And so that um, rather than asking students to read the 3,000 word document, we, we, uh, we excerpt the documents to make them two or 300 words long. Um, and then the second uh, move that we make to, to modify the documents is to um, to simplify challenging text. And that can take a variety of forms. One is to provide students with word banks um, and to say that this is some challenging vocabulary. In other cases, we uh, alter the text more directly. So we have a lesson about Pocahontas and it uh, begins with the Disney movie and then students read a couple of accounts by uh, John Smith trying to answer the question of did Pocahontas save John Smith? And if you read John Smith's writing, um, it can be really challenging. He has some creative spelling. Um, <laughs> and uh, we put it in, in modern day English um, rather than 17th century English. Um, and he has some sentences that go maybe close to 200 words. Uh, and so we insert some periods. And we, we make the documents uh, hopefully a little more accessible by using large fonts. So 14 and 16 point font and with large uh, margins. So there's uh, space for students to to uh, jot down notes in the in the margins, um, which is much appreciated. That's our hope. I'm glad to hear that it's appreciated. Um, all of which, all of these are scaffolds, though, right? And and um, that we, you know, just as you take scaffolding down on a building after you've constructed it, ideally we take these scaffolds down when students are ready to read the original text. And so um, we've put them in place so that we can get all students to engage with uh, the the past. Um, you know that it's it's wonderful to say oh, students should only read original texts, but um, that only goes so far if as long as students can actually read some of that text. And if they can't read the text, it's a non-starter. Um, but we always want to include the original because we want students to have access to the original and we want teachers to have access to the original because we believe strongly that all of our materials should be uh, modified to, to meet the particular needs of the students in your particular classroom who you know best as a teacher. Um, and so you might think that you need further modifications. You might be working with uh, English language learners who need even further scaffolds. Um, or you're working with advanced students and you want them to read the originals. Um, so we, we want the originals to be available um, because teachers ultimately will be able to make their own adaptations of the materials. Because, but what we've tried to do is to balance the competing demands of making documents that are both educationally sound and historically sound. Educationally sound in that they are accessible to a wide 
wider range of students and then historically sound in that we have not altered the meaning of the documents, just the difficulty of the text in them. Now, Joel, I know that um, you've, you also, as you are the director of this program, you've been doing research on it too. And one of the reasons I know that is because I was in a room where you got an award about your research. So congratulations. Congrats. Yeah, congratulations Thanks. on that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the research you've done around this and some of the research maybe other people are doing in this area? Absolutely. So uh, in terms of the reading like a historian curriculum, the, um, the, the biggest piece of research was uh, led by Abby Reisman, who is now an assistant professor at Penn's Graduate School of Education. And she uh, led a study in San Francisco Unified School District where they compared uh, students in classrooms with the Read Like Historian curriculum to students in classrooms who used a more traditional text-based curriculum. And the results of the study showed that students in the Read Like Historian curriculum outperformed their peers in the traditional classrooms on several measures, one of historical thinking, another of historical content knowledge as measured by multiple choice questions. And then uh, the third measure was of reading comprehension. Students did better on a standard Gates-McGinty reading test. And so uh, the students had done better both in history and as readers. And so that that initial um, set of of findings was what led to the posting of the Reading Like a Historian curriculum online. Um, San Francisco Unified was very excited about those findings and they provided some initial support for Abby and one of our colleagues, Brad Fogo, to to put together the materials that then used as part of that initial study onto our website. Um, And we thought at that point that we were kind of done with, with making free materials and putting them online, we thought maybe a couple of people would use those resources, um, but we didn't think there would be a whole lot of interest. Um, and after a few months, we had 50,000 downloads. Um, and now, seven years on, um, we are uh, over three and a half million downloads uh, of materials off the website. Um, so there's been a real uh, increase in those resources. Yeah, I know a lot of people are using the resources, and I think this actually connects back to a discussion Michael and I have been having, and one of the purposes for the podcast, but it seems like what you guys have done is done a good job of bridged the work that we can do in higher education um, with what happens in K-12, because so much of the work we do ends up in written papers that really are not read or sometimes even accessible by classroom teachers. And so I guess, could you speak to that? Because I think um, what, what you guys have done is promoted the idea that this is the type of work we should be doing and the type of scholarship we should be doing um, that makes a difference in social studies education. Yeah, so certainly, you know, that we have a, a, a two-pronged mission in that we are trying to create high-quality educational research, um, but simultaneously reach directly into classrooms by trying to put into practice uh, what we have found to be effective through research and to make materials available for teachers. Um, So often in the world of educational research, there are findings um, that are published in prestigious journals, um, but the actual work of making that happen in classrooms is left to classroom teachers who do not have time to uh, necessarily read through um, those research reports, and uh, but certainly don't have time then to create entirely new curriculum materials. And so what we've tried to do is to make those types of, of resources available for teachers that are based off of um, the research that we've done. Um, and so that, that work has extended beyond curriculum um, into assessment as well, so that 
after we posted the the Read Like Historian curriculum online, um, we got a lot of email from emails from teachers. Um, the most common was uh, "Love your U.S. history curriculum. When are you going to make world history lessons?" Um, and so we have tried to to address that need. We we now have nearly forty world history lessons online as well uh, as the original U.S. history curriculum, and we continue to to add to the world history curriculum. And we're we're building on the U.S. history curriculum as well. Uh, just last week, we posted a new lesson about uh, the Stonewall riots. Oh yeah, we saw that. Yeah, we shared cool that on our out. Facebook page because we're so happy. Oh, nice, awesome, thank you. Uh, yeah, we're we're excited about the lesson. Um, the other most frequent uh, comment that we got the email was, "Where are the assessments? Uh, if you want me to to emphasize these historical thinking skills of sourcing, contextualization, corroboration, and close reading in my classroom, how the heck can I know whether or not my students can actually do those things?" Um, where are the assessments that give me feedback as a teacher about my student's skill in the in that realm? And so that's what led to our work in assessment. And how can we make short document-based assessments that provides teachers with immediate feedback about their students' abilities to think historically? And so um, we generated a, a range of tasks that can be completed in five or ten minutes and have done a, a variety of uh, studies around how those uh, those tasks work and how they can be implemented in classrooms. And so that was um, the, the, the research that I, I was doing as a doctoral student around um, how teachers make sense of student responses to those tasks and then also how teachers implemented them in classrooms. And that's called? Beyond the Bubble, which ah. beyondthebubble.stanford.edu. So an effort to move beyond the, the bubbles of, of multiple choice questions. I, I it's a great, everything you, you guys have been doing is pretty great. I actually went, you did PD over the summer, like a, not you in particular, but they had like a, a Shegg PD at Stanford. And I was so excited. I went, I did not get into the Shegg, the Shegg, I ended up doing a culturally responsive classroom because oh, the cool. Shegg uh, sold out within like a half hour. Yeah, so I, I actually did run that. So yeah, my me and my colleague, uh, Brad Fogo. That's run, who I met. Uh, yeah, so Brad and I run it every summer, um, and yeah, it's, it, it is a lot of fun. The, uh, the summer workshop attracts folks from all over the country, and then actually all over the world, we usually get uh, international teachers as well. So we had somebody who was teaching in China and was flying out at, uh, immediately after our Friday session ended, um, but it has proven to be pretty popular. So yeah, uh, in the last couple of years, it has sold out very quickly on, on day one, unfortunately. So next year, I really want to get in. Well, well, we can make it happen. I hope. Yeah, I think having having you on the podcast that seems like it's, <laughs> this is, that would be a fair trade, right? <laughs> so another thing. Well, not that I want to blame you for this, but some of the U.S. teachers are stealing the world history stuff, and they're doing it with their students the year before me. <laughs> and I just want to say, dude, I told you what this was. Step off, please. Blowing it up, right? Suddenly you have the students who all say, Mr. Milton, we already did this. I saw that lesson before. <laughs> ah. So, um, Joel, can you tell us uh, what, where, where can people find this, all of this stuff uh, online? Um, what, what would you recommend for, for p teachers that are just starting to get into trying to use some of this curriculum and ideas? Yeah, absolutely. So all of our materials are available for free online. Uh, we have two websites, three websites really, two that we maintain. 
Um, I mentioned historical thinking matters. Um, historical thinking matters continues to exist as, as a website. Um, the two main websites though are Sheg, S-H-E-G dot Stanford dot E-D-U and beyond the bubble dot Stanford dot E-D-U. Um, they both require a login. Uh, to access them, the login is free. You just have to create an account, which just uh, requires a, a valid email address. Uh, and then once you've created on one of the sites, it works on both of the sites. And you just need the login in order to download the PDFs. All of the resources are visible um, without without a login, but you do need the login in order to download the PDFs. In terms of starting, um, I would I would encourage teachers to check out the introductory material section of the uh, Shag website. It's under curriculum, um, and then which is on the navigation bar at the top of the page, and then on the left hand side it says intro materials, U.S. history, and then world history. And so the intro materials have those classroom posters I was describing, but they also have lessons that introduce the idea of historical thinking without historical documents. So there is a lesson that presents students with a, a series of accounts about a fight that happened in the cafeteria. There's and a students are, it's, yeah, there are actually two. There's a lunchroom fight one and lunchroom fight two. Um, the second one, though, presents students with a series of accounts uh, uh, that uh, provide very different takes on the fight that happened. And students are asked to read those accounts and also to read about the context of the lunchroom and the town and to try to make sense of what took place and to decide how the uh, participants in this fight should or should not be punished. And in the process, students engage in these historical thinking skills of thinking about the sources. Do I trust the kid who was involved in the fight or is his dad a reputable source? Um, and they corroborate. They look at multiple accounts and they think about uh, the context and how the context uh, might influence the content of the documents. And along the way, teachers can begin to develop these skills without the additional difficulty of challenging text. And um, from talking with teachers, many, uh, many people have found this to be a useful entry point that then can, then can serve as a touchstone throughout the year to say, well, remember from the lunchroom fight, what did we do? We looked at multiple counts. That's corroboration. Um, so it's a nice way to begin to be build these skills um, without some of the barriers of, of challenging texts. And this is where I want to, this is where I just want to add in, if you're doing this and your department is doing this, talk to each other. Because if you do the <laughs> same thing, it gets really dull. Please talk to each other. Maybe I'm just speaking right now to my colleagues. Well, that that is a uh, a frequent response we hear from uh, from folks who who are working across a uh, across the school, and of course it can be a strength if you're all using the same materials, just not the exact same lessons, preferably, but the same materials. The same then skills. you start, yeah, you start to develop a common language about some of the activities and things you're doing. But I really do love how you guys start all of that with something that is relatable in in a current context about you know something that could happen in their lives, and then you work your way to the historical. So. Um, this has been great. So, Joel, where can people find your your work online and connect to your research that you've been doing? Uh, you can find uh, all of our materials on the Stanford History Education Group's website, which is sheg.stanford.edu. And are you on a are you on Twitter or any other spaces like that? If people have questions or just want to follow you and see what else you're up to, yep, absolutely. So, uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, at Joel Breakstone, all one word. Um, Shag also is on Twitter, Shag underscore Stanford. Um, if you search for 
Stanford History Education Group on Facebook. We have a Facebook account as well. I encourage people to check out both of those uh, platforms. It's the best way to find out when we have new materials on our website. Um, we don't advertise them through email or any other way. So if you want to know when a new lesson goes live um, or when we have new research out, um, those, are, those are the best ways to, to find out about that information. Fantastic. Th thank you so much for joining us today. And we definitely hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. My pleasure. I look forward to it. And at Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. So if you're doing something neat or creative in education, tweet us. We're at Visions of Ed. Or if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you write us a five-star review, then we'll read it on the air. And Michael, we're doing it next episode. We're actually going to read some of our ones on the air, okay? We will. How exciting. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. This is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.